turn your Bibles. Book of Acts. Begin reading in chapter 22, verse 22. We'll be reading through chapter 23, verse 10. Pretty lengthy portion of scripture that we're going to be trying to handle today, but a lot of narrative that we want to uh, press through today. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. Acts chapter 22, beginning verse 22 through 23, verse 10. God's word declares, and they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with, tong- with tongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party rose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Well, this morning... We have, as I said earlier, a lengthy portion of scripture to get through, but a lot of narrative, and uh, we want to glean those some uh, insights into what was happening and why it was happening in the manner it was and how that would impact our moving within the world, both within the religious community and within the so-called secular community. And the extent to which we are 
ready to incur uh, the wrath of our community based upon our willingness to stand for our faith, but also to point to their inconsistencies and their sin. We are going to examine how Paul is going to move and really is going to set a stage for the balance of the book of Acts. How is he going to navigate through this system that here in Jerusalem is very complicated, and as he goes farther away from Jerusalem, it actually becomes simpler and simpler to navigate. Because then he is in the Roman world, which is very, (laughs) very organized, and uh, at this point, even with Nero as emperor, we still have a very uh, straightforward system of government that is a mo- has been a model for many governments since. Uh, but Paul still has to navigate through all of those and also deal with the, the quirks of different personalities that he has to encounter along the way. But I want to remind us of the driving force behind this navigating the system. And that is that Paul has been instructed by the Lord that it is for him to preach the gospel, not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but to the Gentiles, and as far as the Gentiles go, all the way to the kings, that he is to take it all the way to the top. And this might uh, be a little daunting for us to consider, uh, and I, I really, this is very different than our modern idea of approaching the leadership of government, of communities, uh, from the pulpit. Uh, In terms of God using prophets, this is very common. Again and again, the prophets were called upon to engage and address the leaders of their people. Uh, And not only sometimes their people, sometimes the leaders of other peoples. As you think of Jonah going out to Nineveh, Nahum as well as a prophet going... And so they're, they're called to engage the leadership, and this often got them into the most trouble. And in fact, already in the New Testament, we have had that occur with John the Baptist. It got him beheaded, simply because he was going to address the sin of the king. Uh, and not do it quietly, not do it in a corner, but do it right to his face. And to call him on that, and we're going to find Paul... Uh, being used by God in a similar fashion where in court with the leadership right before him, he is going to call them on their sin down the road. And so navigating this is not just about avoidance of trouble or making the path as easy as possible, rather to fulfill the mission that God had given to him, and that is that this message cannot be uh, limited and remain in Jerusalem. It must be gotten out, and it cannot be limited among uh, the marketplace people. It needs to go all the way to Caesar himself. And this is Paul's intent, and it will come into fruition uh, largely before we get to the book of, end of the book of Acts, and in the months and years following the book of Acts as well. So let's look at how he begins to navigate this. And we've already kind of seen a little bit of this when he is arrested and quickly uh, shocks his captors by um, being able to communicate them in their language. You speak Greek? 
and then to be able to communicate to a mob by speaking in Hebrew and quieting them very quickly. Obviously, this is an educated man uh, who has at least three languages at his disposal um, at any time, possibly more, but at least three. And he is going to uh, uh, know his rights. He will also know his surrounds and how to best, uh, as we say, navigate through them. Let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer, though, as we look in the specifics of how he, uh, some principles of how he's going to do this. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you again for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to look in your word. And we pray your spirit might direct during this time, both in what is said and what is received, and the spirit of both that they might be willing to receive your word. We might be those that uh, would recognize its authority and humbly submit ourselves to its truth, that we might believe it, and not just know it, and know of it, but rather that we might uh, have that relationship with you, as uh, not only as a servant to his master, but also as one saved to the Savior, as a friend, and brother, a co-heir, that we might be responsive to your work in our lives today. And Lord, as we do so, we also know that your promises are that you will further your work in us as we respond to what you provide and direct us in today. And again, we pray that you might find willing hearts to receive your ministry this morning, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul has incited the crowd by simply using the term Gentiles, which of course was the accusation that really first came was that he brought Gentiles into the holy place, which of course he did not. But just hearing him reference them, uh, sent them into a tizzy and they were ready to kill him. The commander recognizes what the mob looks like and in verse 24. We find him Remember, they're on the steps of the barracks at the time, and he simply pulls them inside the door uh, to prevent the mob from doing anything, whether it be throwing anything at them towards him or being trying to overpower his force. And so he brings them in, and he is certain because he has no clue what has just been spoken. None whatsoever. While Paul speaks his language, he doesn't speak the language of the temple. He doesn't speak Hebrew. He has no idea what it was that incited this mob into, again, wanting to uh, kill this man. And so he wants to know. And the way Romans find out information is they take out their scourges. This is how they do it. I know this violates our modern sensitivities against torture, but uh, historically throughout all the time, that's pretty much how you got to the truth of the matter um, when you're dealing with those that you're in conflict with. And so he says, let's put him under a scourge. And uh, lest you think that that's just uh, a light thing to happen, uh, men have died while under a scourge. Uh, this is the famous Roman cat of nine tails um, with leather that would have tied on the ends of it bits of stone, um, metal, that uh, were intended to do the damage you would expect them to do, and that is to shred the body of the one being scourged, uh, to encourage them to then come forth and give the whole story. Let's hear the whole account of what's going on here. 
And that was his intent to do, and this was his uh, normal operations for the Romans. This was not out of character. This was not uh, looked down upon. Uh, This was his job. And he is going to implement the tools at his disposal. If he had failed to do this, he would have been reprimanded by those above him for not uh, finding the bottom of the matter in the issue. Uh, The problem is not the action. The action he is commanding is pretty standard um, for the Roman people, for the Roman government. Uh, Remember, these are the people who crucified criminals. Uh, Slow, painful death and intended to be that as a message to others, not just a death penalty, but a death penalty uh, associated with one you wanted to avoid at all costs. And so these are the people who had uh, found uh, incredible ways to sometimes to inflict injury and uh, pain and slow death upon criminals in their midst. The problem is, is that while you can do that to anyone you please, for whatever reason you please, including this, there would appear a, a man that was innocent, not who you thought he was, right right away. He's not the Egyptian. I don't know who he is. I don't know what he said. Instead of just asking him flat out, he says, let's just scourge the guy and let's get on with this. There's a problem. You can scourge anyone you want, almost for any reason you want, except for one class of people. In the Roman Empire, that would be a Roman citizen. And we think of citizenship as, well, I was born here, therefore I'm a citizen here automatically. And that just wasn't true in the Roman period. Um, Only certain individuals were given citizenship. That citizenship was only passed down through their lineage. um, And so it had to be conferred upon you by the Roman Empire, which usually meant Caesar or a representative of Caesar uh, in the empire. Uh, it wasn't just because you're a landholder. It wasn't just because you're wealthy. It wasn't none of those. There were other factors involved, but the citizenship was really a, had a tremendous privileges that went along with it. All the privileges that we kind of take for granted for every citizen in our country um, of jurisprudence and things like that, um, were generally reserved only for Roman citizens. And just to give you an idea of the population of the empire at this time, uh, we need to recognize that over 50% of the residents within the Roman Empire weren't even free men. They were slaves. And so start processing some of that, and, and if we just say, let's say, half this room are slaves... We'll just pick this half over here because you're younger. <laughs> well, maybe not. Mr. Fry's over here. And Mr. Rod. Never mind. You guys over here are slaves. <laughs> no, Miss, you guys didn't help me out the, today at all, did you? With your, didn't segregate yourselves very well at all. And it, half of them would be a slave class. Not even free men that weren't citizens. We're not even talking about citizens yet. We're just talking about free men versus slaves. Over half the empire's population were slaves. Now, among the other half of the population, there were free men and citizens. About 20% or less, are the numbers, depending upon who you read, um, were citizens. 
whoa, this is a rarity. And now you're in the land of Judea, in the city of Jerusalem, and there are very few Jews who are Roman citizens. Very few. Now, by this time, um, in the course of the Roman Empire, uh, there was a period that you could start to buy citizenship. That wasn't really available earlier, and it kind of helps us set a date here. Luke has really enabled us in this text to really associate that he knew um, what was going on in the Roman Empire. He was aware, and so the commander comes forth and says, I was one of those guys that ponied up a lot of money so that I could buy the rights of citizenship. And is that how you got it? And that was a, a, something that had come available really only in recent period um, here in, in the Roman uh, government. It really wasn't that way earlier. But later on, in order to raise funds, and uh, imagine that, a government trying to figure out how to get more money. Um, Nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> and so we'll sell citizenship. You can buy it. And they paid a hefty sum for this um, that they would have to bring forward and they can't go to banks and get loans for it. They would have to save that up. They would have to often sell uh, lots of uh, uh, their effects in order to come up with the sum required to buy citizenship. And so when the commander says, with well, a large sum I obtained the citizenship, um, he, he, it's a valuable commodity. And he says, do you have that kind of resources um, that you bought yours? Now, even though both men are citizens, there is an obvious, uh, what do we want to say, uh, new wealth versus old wealth. There's, a, there's an obvious dissection among citizenships between those who bought them and those who have them that are born with them, that have inherited it, or have been given it by Caesar himself. There is a dichotomy there, even among the citizens at this point, that while those who have bought it do technically have citizenship, it can more easily be taken away than the citizenship of those that were born into it. They received it by Caesar's hand. And they were more likely to be the ones that would be able to serve in the uh, government of the Roman Empire. At this point, more than likely, at this point, those that had purchased citizenship had not really had access to the Senate and things like that within the Roman world. But they did receive the benefits that we're going to be talking about here shortly. So Paul's statement saying, and it's really not saying that, it's a question. He's, just, he's already bound. They've already broken one law. They've already broken one of his rights. You cannot bind a Roman citizen unless uh, you have accused him of something. Unless you have, and Paul asked this question, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? You might say, well, he, does, he wants to avoid the scourge. But they've already broken the law because they've already bound him to be scourged. Even the binding of a Roman citizen um, is unlawful. And so when we go on in verse 29, it says the commander was afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. 
All Paul has to do is, that guy bound me. I had no trial. I, I wasn't resisting arrest. I wasn't in an act of violence. I had, there was, he had no right to bind me. This commander's head is on the block right now and in Paul's hands. And that's what makes him afraid. All he has to do is jump and shout and get excited and hire a lawyer and sue him. That's the American version. All he would have to do is point the finger. And this commander's in trouble and recognizes it. So even before the scourging, Paul allows himself to be bound. Um, Interesting, because that's exactly what the prophet said would happen to him. So I'm going to be bound. Uh, God told me I was going to be bound, so I'm ready for that. Um, Now, when we get to the part about scourging, God didn't say I was going to be scourged. (laughs) Uh, I don't know that I have to endure that. Um, So he asked the question, uh, is this legal? Do you think Paul knew the answer? Paul knew the answer. Everyone in the citadel knew the answer. Paul didn't scream and shout and say, I'm a citizen, you can't do this. He just said, "Um, is it lawful for you to do this to a citizen of Rome? And inviting them to ask the question, are you a citizen? Um, This man's a Roman. We're in trouble. We've stepped beyond the bounds because we didn't understand who this person. Now remember, they've already realized that he, this guy is more than what they bargained for. They already knew that. They already knew that he wasn't who they supposed him to be, that he is fluent in Greek, that in addition to Aramaic, and he's fluent in Hebrew. This is a man of different quality than they're maybe accustomed to dealing with. And now to find out he is a Roman citizen, not by the purchase of it, but born a citizen. Now, suddenly, he's going to be uh, treated very differently. In fact, by verse 30, we find him immediately um, freed. (laughs) You're you're released from your bonds. um, And now, instead of Paul (laughs) being the one that's being scrutinized, uh, notice that in verse 30, they release Paul. Paul's free. Now he says, I'm going to command the chief priests, and at this time there were two of them, strangely enough, uh, one that was the rightful one, one that was the Roman one. So they, the, the, again, Luke does an excellent job, historically accurate. There were two chief priests. Kind of weird to have two chiefs, but that's what happened. Um, the Jews didn't recognize the ones the Romans appointed. Um, but So they're both involved and their counsel to appear. And so now... Um, instead of him going out, now the chief priests in the council have to appear, and they are being commanded by the commander uh, to come and present so they can have this very orderly, and uh, he can hear what's going on, see what, what the situation is, and he's going to bring Paul down, set him before them, so now we can have this and find out what's going on. Get rid of the mob, let's get the leaders of the Jews, we'll put them here, we'll put Paul in that room, he is of quality enough He is a Roman citizen. He is well-educated. And so let's let all these higher-class people, (laughs) if you will, not the mob, gather together, and maybe we can sort this thing out in a peaceful fashion. And, of course, Paul um, makes the statement that gets him slapped. The statement um, we need to recognize is insightful. 
Not S-I-G-H-T, but C-I-T-E. It's meant to incite a response. What he is stating here is accurate, absolutely, because of his position in Christ. But I want you to recognize why the chief priest so quickly calls for his assault. Assault that man. Slap him in the mouth for making this declaration. And this is the declaration that we make or claim if we have received Christ as our Savior. You ready? This declaration. And, and if this should be our testimony. I, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Wow. What is he claiming here? This is a, a phenomenal claim. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And you might say, well, does that mean he was never a sinner? That's not really the, the, the force of what is being spoken What's being spoken is that I have been walking in obedience to God um, and I've been doing it faithfully and I have no sin to confess. I have no sacrifice really to make. Um, I am a cleansed, redeemed, pure individual before you. My conscience is completely clear before God. Now remember that the Jews who were zealous for the law When could your conscience ever be clear under the law? When? You could never keep the law perfectly. That was the whole point. No one could. If you could keep the law perfectly, you would never have to bring a sacrifice. Every sacrifice they brought, every animal they slaughtered, every blood that was shed was a reminder that you didn't keep the law. Your conscience isn't clear. You're still something between you and God, and it is your sin and the blood of innocence must be shed. But we recognize because that's to be shed over and over and over again, it's not complete. And that's why Hebrews shares this the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. We need a Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when he comes before these men, and remember, these men are the rabbis, these are the leaders, these are the priests of God, and it is their whole function to jab the consciences of men. To remind them they're breaking the law, 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 give a sacrifice, you're breaking the law. I mean, they're, they're the ones that are enforcing, they, they see it as their job to enforce the law. Men don't have clear consciences under the law, they have guilty consciences under the law. And these men are zealous for the law. And so the command by Ananias, the high priest, to strike Paul in the mouth, while it wasn't legitimate, it comes out of a deep-seated understanding of what is being declared and his uh, certainly illegal statement, where we're going to find his illegal command um, is going to be borne out, but I want you to see where it's coming from in Ananias. He understands this claim that's being made and the and what it involves. This is not just a gut reaction. Oh, shut up! No, 
I am fully convinced Ananias understood what is being declared. Remember, this is not the first time he has heard a Christian. Christianity isn't new in Jerusalem these days anymore. It's been there for, well, 25 years or so. What did James say? Myriads of Jews have come to know Christ, but they're zealous for the law too. Remember? And so we have thousands and tens of thousands. So he's not, he's not unaware of this message of Paul on the way uh, and the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not uninformed. He knows exactly what is being stated here. That by the revelation of Jesus Christ from that time when he was a new creature, that he has lived in all good conscience before God from then till now. This is our testimony. Does that mean that Paul's been sinless this entire time? No, but every sin is covered by the same sacrifice, Jesus Christ. It's covered. You're redeemed. You're not in and out of the family of God. You've put your trust in Jesus Christ and your conscience is, can be cleansed daily simply by the confession and that First John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He has a clear conscience. And the men he's standing in front of don't, who have not received Christ as their Savior. And Ananias understands the significance of this declaration. And so he gives out the command from wherever he was seated And again, we're going to try to understand what's going to happen to Paul here and why he's going to do what he does. Um, Gives the command to slap that man in the mouth. What he said is, is sinful against the law. It is perfectly accurate if you're in Christ. And Ananias recognizes it. He has to. Paul then responds, and uh, the response is couched in a couple of things. First of all, in chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, made that statement. Um, He did a thoughtful thing. (laughs) He took his time. He looked at this. He recognized this is the council. um, uh, This is the high, this is everybody. Sadducees, Pharisees, high priests, this is the council. This is the ruling body of Jerusalem underneath the Roman government. It doesn't mean that he recognized everyone on the council or who was who. Uh, And we have some evidence historically that one of the injuries that Paul incurred um, over the course of his missionary journeys, remember his stonings and things that happened to him, his beatings that he took, was his eyesight. In fact, in one of the letters, he says, I've taken up the pen to write now. Do you see how large the letters I have to write? Everyone knew that Paul's eyesight was extraordinarily bad. Uh, so that when he picked up a pen, it took like sheets. You know, <laughs> The amanuensis he used, the little secretary, he could write lots of words on a page. Paul couldn't. He couldn't see that well. And so he says, you see what large letters I write? And so this is my own hand doing the very last little bit of that letter. And so Paul's sight was, was 
poor. And uh, so when he's looking at him, he recognizes he's in the council. He, he recognizes the full council, high priests, Sadducees, Pharisees, they're all there. Um, but I don't know that he can recognize individuals in the group. Um, and so when Paul, somebody makes a statement to strike him on the mouth, um, Paul responds with this retort in verse 3. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Now this is not the law of the Romans. This is not Paul talking about his Roman citizenry. And so we have that laws that he's going to function and, and allow him and use to guide him all the way to Rome. Uh, but this is another law, that here in the midst of judging, without any testimony, without anything, without any uh, decision, uh, in the midst of this meeting, uh, this was not to happen. And if that shocks you that here's the Sanhedrin violating its own rules, um, it shouldn't, because I think they pretty much did that with Jesus. Remember, we're talking about the same group. Many of these are the same men. They're still there. Ananias is still there. These are the guys that plunked down 30 pieces of silver to buy a traitor. These are the guys that went out in the middle of the night to make an arrest, also against the law. These are the guys who throughout the night tried Jesus, also against the law. So Paul here is, is, interestingly enough, using a term that Jesus used to refer to them, whitewashed. Um, that is, you're all looking clean on the outside, but inside you have no clear conscience at all. And you violate your own laws while you try to judge me by that same law. And he's calling out a hypocrite, is what he's doing. Let's just make it plain. He's calling out a hypocrite. He doesn't recognize, he admits this, he doesn't know that that's the high priest. And he does it in a very forceful way, and a way that uh, you can see he's, he's riled. He's been slapped in the mouth for speaking the truth. When he wasn't expecting it, when it wasn't legal to do that, um, when he hadn't said really hardly anything else, he had a thoughtful statement, and he had just been slapped for it, contrary to the law. Everyone knows what he has said is accurate. The problem isn't what he said. The problem is who he said it to. I want you to note that. They didn't say, don't try to teach us the law. They didn't teach, say that. This guy knows the law. Remember? Pharisee of the Pharisees. Top under the Gamaliel. He knew the law. He knows the law. He knows that what just happened is a violation of the law. So here he is making a proclamation that he has a clear conscience. For that he gets slapped by, by command of Ananias and now he twists the knife, calling out a hypocrite and saying, you think the law is the measure, but you 
have no clear conscience. Your conscience isn't good because you just broke your own law while you're trying to keep that law or enforce that law. You're violating the law. Once he is corrected by those who are around him, that the one who gave the command was God's high priest, we have a sudden shift by Paul to humble himself and to recognize I shouldn't have said that to him. If that's the high priest, I was out of play. I was out of line. It was wrong. But I didn't know it was the high priest that said that. And even if it was, it wasn't legal for the high priest to command this either, by the way. But he has the authority in the room, and God has commanded not to speak evil of a ruler of your people. And here's a principle that we have waxed on before and and heavily try to communicate is that our relationship with authority um, demands something higher of us than the rebellion that is typical of the world. Even when they break the law to do injury to us. We can claim our rights. We can say it's hypocritical. We can... (laughs) We had a big hypocritical event happen this week, right, here in New Mexico, Colorado, really. Okay? We got a river running orange coming through New Mexico, the Animus River. Why? Not because of a gold mine. They did their job. They followed all the EPA instructions. The EPA comes in, takes over the site, violate their own rules, and let a million gallons of crud go into our river. And their statement is, oops. We're going to have to clean this up for a long time. Whenever you hear that, realize that means your money for a long time being spent. If that had been a private company that had done that, what would have happened to them? They would have been fined up the wazoo. People would have gone to jail. Everything. Okay, so hypocritical government isn't gone. It's still around. If you do it, it's bad. If we do it, well. But what do we do? What's our response? Well, when they have that authority, Paul is going to, even when they have done wrong, Paul understands that if you have, if you are the ruler of our people, then my responsibility is not to speak evil of you. I'm not going to do this if I realize you're the high priest. I wasn't, I shouldn't have responded that way. I didn't know that it was the high priest that made that command, um, even though, (laughs) he doesn't go on to say, even though it's still illegal, um, he doesn't, I can oppress that any farther. He's done. When we deal with those authorities that God has established over our people, whether we want to see within the church, within our families, within our government of our people, our nationalities, um, we have a responsibility before God to be thankful for them. Are they going to do right all the time? 
Hardly ever, from what I can tell. Are they going to be hypocritical? Yes. Are they going to break their own laws to enforce the law on us? Yes. What is our response? We can certainly understand and communicate that, but to revile them, to speak evil of them, is not what God calls us. We can point out sin, and certainly we are not going to avoid that, and as we have just shared, the purpose of the prophet is to look at the king and say, that is sin. But that is very different from speaking evil of the king. They say, well, what's the difference? Well, I think a good one is Saul. Saul is a good example of a king that really went bad. Did some evil things. And Samuel confronted him. That was the job of a prophet, to confront the king with his sin. Confronted him multiple times, spoke frankly, directly, uh, and sometimes harshly to Saul. But that's not speaking evil of him elsewhere. And then it comes along this young guy that's Saul's replacement, though Saul doesn't know it for a while. And this young guy becomes a threat. And so Saul begins to attack him, hunt him down, though he's done nothing wrong against Saul. And over and over again, David, his response is, I will... Do nothing against the Lord's anointed. Even though he is hunting my life without a cause, even though the Lord delivered him into my hand, I've got him by the the bottom of the robe at this point. I'm not going to move my hand against the Lord's anointed. Is he filled with the evil spirit? Yes. Is he doing evil? Yes. The slaughter the priests? Yes! I mean, if there's any king of Israel that needed to be taken care of, it seemed like that was the guy. And David would have had every rightness in our idea of justice to take him out. But instead, he has a testimony to his men that he will not do evil. He will not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. And even when Saul is dead, you don't find David rejoicing. But rather than taking our examples from godly men like David, we'd rather take them from Hollywood. Ding dong, the wicked witch. Wicked witch is dead. Let's have a party. Paul, once he realizes he's dealing with the high priest, acknowledges that in ignorance he spoke and misspoke. Not in its information, but in its accusation, in its reviling against the individual who called for that. So we can speak and say this happened and it's 
obvious that it did, and we can call sin, sin, and it's necessary that we do that. And Paul is going to do that later on, but not in a reviling tone, that we are doing it with a spirit and an attitude that says, I need to call you to repentance. I need to identify that, and as they resist that, as they as they stiffen against that, that will be their judgment. It is no longer for us to go any farther than that. Is to simply accept the fact that now God must judge them. It is not my responsibility. It is my responsibility to communicate to them: you have sinned, you have erred, you have you are in uh, a place of opposition to God and His Word, His truth. I cannot take it further. They resist that. If they if they stiffen against it, then we move. We do as Paul does, and he's not going to press the matter any further. He realizes he has to take a whole different approach now, because these are people stiffened against the truth. And rather than taking a reviling approach, he simply, let's boil this down. Let's boil this all down to the very, 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 very basic thing. And that is, this is all about the resurrection. Because really it all boils down to, do I have to believe and obey a resurrected man, Jesus Christ, even if it violates the law of Moses? So it's really about which weighs out more. Do you believe in the resurrection? In that case, then this is a message from heaven directly that I have to obey. And that is what got him in trouble. Remember, I saw Jesus. He sent me to Ananias. Ananias told me, receive your sight, receive the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be a witness for me to the Gentiles. So either I have to believe that or not. Do you believe in the resurrection or not? That's what this all boils down to. And this is so important to Luke throughout the book of Acts. And we've shared it before. Um, That the resurrection is the crux of Christianity. It is the absolute necessity in addition to the deity of Christ is the resurrection. Paul over, or I'm sorry, Luke over and over again throughout the book of Acts, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. It's a sad state, really, that there are more songs in our hymnal over the cross than there is over the empty tomb. The cross is the work of Romans. The empty tomb is the work of God. And so Paul boils this down and says, okay, let's just get this down to the... And some people thought that, well, Paul figured this was going to happen. But, but really, um, honestly, uh, this is the point. Is there a resurrection or not? And if there's a resurrection, why don't you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? And if he was raised from the dead, then that is a powerful demonstration of his deity and of all of his claims during his life, and therefore he has authority, and that authority must command me, and it must command me above the law because it's coming right from heaven. And so it does boil down to this premise. Now, Paul, 
adds a little bit to it. He says, I'm a Pharisee. Okay. So I'm a Pharisee. So I'm a Pharisee. Um, And it's about the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm being judged. And that immediately threw up the biggest division within the council between Pharisees and Sadducees. And of course, it incites a big debate, as verse 9 says, a loud outcry occur, arose. Some said, this is, we can't find any evil in this man because if God's spoken to him, we have no right to say anything. These are almost the identical words of Gamaliel back 25 years ago. You know, if this is of God, we shouldn't fight against it. If it's not, it'll dissipate. Just leave it alone. And so there's a great dissension, there's a great argument. And again, Commander's concerned not about the council. He's concerned about the citizen. <laughs> I don't want the citizen hurt under my rule. I've already bound him once. I'm already up to here with this guy in trouble. Uh, I'm going to protect him. He's the citizen in the room that I have to concern myself with. And so he takes him uh, by force, it says, from among them. So they were handling Paul at this point, grappling him you will, from side to side, and taken by force from among them and back to the barracks. So even among the, the leadership, we find that immediately this embroiled argument, and again, what does it come down to? The argument really in Israel and about Christ was the resurrection. Do we have a risen Savior? Is there hope of eternal life? Something to trust in for the balance of our days and into eternity. Or is this all there is? Because if this is all there is, then the man that said, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die is right. If there is no resurrection, Paul was right in Corinthians, we are most pitiable of people. Because Jesus Christ isn't raised, and if Jesus Christ isn't raised... And we're still in our sin. And this needs to be our point. Our most treasured declaration. That by the resurrected Savior, I can live with a good conscience. And only that way. The law will never help you live a good conscience. But Christ will always produce that. If we simply walk in faith in him, as Paul has done, and live with, not in our own strength, but in that which God gives us through his spirit by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this message was divisive then, it's divisive today. And people will laugh at it, scorn it, resist it. But the believers, the men of God, they will stand fast in it and put their hope in it. And by doing so, they will be delivered in the midst of it. 
And so while we know that there are legal arguments that Paul has used and will use, ultimately his hope is in this one who is resurrected. He's made it in his declaration. He will make it again and again before every body of justice that he has to confront from here on out. He'll make this statement over and over again, hoping to persuade some to follow this one who has transformed him. From the Pharisee, who, which the law kept his conscience defiled, to become follower of the way, Jesus Christ, by which he could live with all good conscience before God every day. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word, and we pray that it might reap a harvest of righteousness in our lives. And Lord, we again rejoice in the knowledge of your resurrection. That here is testimony from a period when men could have easily said, there his dead body is. That this information could have easily been proven false but could not for it was true by the power of the resurrection Lord we thank you for the clearing of our conscience that we can be made new creatures in you old things are passed away and all things can become new that we can live and walk and move even in this wicked world with clear consciences before you, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, we pray that we might, in good conscience, always be ready to confess our sin before you, seeking your cleansing, that we might walk before you white as snow. Lord, I do pray that if there's any here that do not know you as Savior and Lord, whose conscience isn't clear, that are not walking in your way, they might receive you even this day. In Christ Jesus' name.